0: Well, good morning and happy Sabbath. It's good to be here in Centerville. You know, I did something that I rarely do, and that is, at the last minute, the the Lord impressed upon me to change the sermon that I had prepared, that I had thought I was going to give. And so, the title for the message today is a most precious message. And before we get into the sermon, I'm just going to ask the Lord to guide us today. But again, it's great to be with you here in Centerville. We always enjoy coming and trust that the Lord has a blessing in store for us today. So let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for bringing us here to worship you today. I pray that you would guide us as we reflect on that which has happened before and that which is coming soon. And I pray that we would be in tune with you and that you would give me the right words to speak so that we would receive the blessings and the admonitions that you would have for us today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it has been said that those who fail to learn from the mistakes of history are doomed to repeat those mistakes. Today I want to look at... From a Adventist and historical perspective, the history of 1888. The year was 1888. James White had been dead for seven years. James White was obviously one of the giants of the pioneers who helped by God's grace to start the Adventist faith, and he worked himself to death. He died in his early 60s. At the time of his death, the Lord told Ellen White that he would raise up other messengers to carry on the work that James had left aside at his death. It wouldn't be long before that promise became apparent for those who were paying attention. The 7th Adventist Church had formally organized in 1863 in Battle Creek, Michigan. Three years later, in 1866, Dr. John Harvey Kellogg formed the Battle Creek Sanitarium. He was called the Lord's Physician by Ellen White. There were a lot of things that were happening in those 25 years from 1863 to 1888, but a lot of pieces were being put into place to see the return of Jesus in the clouds of heaven. Yet, Seventh-day Adonis were struggling with an understanding of the gospel of righteousness by faith. Sermons were preached on the law that reached a point that Ellen White called them as dry as the hills of Gilboa. Now, you may wonder what it means for something to be as dry as the hills of Gilboa. Now, you don't have to necessarily know exactly, but here's the point. Gilboa was the mountain where King Saul was killed in battle. And after his death... David cursed the hills of Gilboa, saying, You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew nor rain upon you, neither fields of choice fruits, for there the shield of the mighty was vilely cast away, the shield of Saul anointed with oil. And so, after Saul's death, Gilboa became a wasteland, a desert land. And so, you didn't have to know that history to know that if something's as dry as the hills of Gilboa, that must be pretty dry. Well, the reason why it was dry is because Gilboa became a wasteland after the death of Saul. And Ellen White said that Adventist sermons in the 1880s were as dry as the hills of Gilboa because they preached the law, but they did not lift up Christ. Now, it should be said of us today that when you come and hear a message at church that Christ is lifted up, there's many things in Scripture that we talk about. There are many many truths to discuss, but Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And if Jesus is not exalted within the truth that is proclaimed, we are not presenting that truth as it should be preached. So 25 years after the formal organization of God's end-time remnant church, God was bringing his church to a climax. Yet there were storm clouds that were brewing in the church, And in the world, in the church, you had the president of the general conference, G.I. Butler, write a series of articles in the Review and Herald where he claimed that there were degrees of inspiration in scripture. You may not know that, but that's an interesting part of history. And three years after he wrote those articles, he used the principles of those articles to say that Ellen White must not be inspired because he disagreed with that which which she was saying about him. So we had some challenges there, and then we had storm clouds brewing on the world scene. Some of you may have heard of the Blair Bill of 1888. Senator Henry W. Blair of New Hampshire proposed a bill on the floor of the United States Senate, which read... A bill to secure to the people the enjoyment of the first day of the week, commonly known as the Lord's Day, as a day of rest, and to promote its observance as a day of religious worship. Now I'll say this, there are Seventh-day Adventists you don't study much prophecy, but if you hear a bill that says that, what are you thinking? This is the end of the world. We know what Revelation 13 says about the, the two beasts that will work together, and about an image to the beast being formed, the image being the union of church and state, and the mark of the beast is enforced Sunday worship. Seventh-day Adventists know that. And so there's this bill being discussed. This was introduced on May 21, 1888. And yet, very fascinatingly, a Seventh-day Adventist preacher by the name of A.T. Jones came to the United States Senate and successfully argued against this bill. And the crafters of the bill were even trying to accommodate Jews and Seventh-day Adventists and saying, well, we'll make accommodation for Seventh-day Adventists and give you an exception to this law. And what Jones brilliantly argued was that if you give us an exception to that which is already a natural right, you're taking our rights away from us anyway. We don't need an exception to preserve that which already exists. And the bill was defeated. So the stage was set for the Holy Spirit to be poured out at the General Conference session later that year in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And this is where we're going to go to our scripture reading for today in Galatians chapter 3. Because in Galatians chapter 3, we see a passage of scripture that came into an area of dispute among church leaders and believers, members. Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 26. Here we read, but before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith, which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us into Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, for you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Now, this passage of Scripture became a point of dispute because... Some of the key leaders of the church, Uriah Smith, the gentleman who wrote the book Daniel and the Revelation, the book that we still often use today, very excellent book on Daniel and Revelation, G.I. Butler, the president of the General Conference, and then several other key leaders, they came to an understanding that the law being discussed in this passage was the ceremonial law, yet Jones and Wagner, A.T. Jones and E.J. Wagner, who was a physician in... California, who was now writing for the signs of the times, came to an understanding that this law was actually not the ceremonial law, but the moral law. Now, let me give you a little bit of a final answer. You know what the Lord revealed to Ellen White sometime after 1888? The law here is both the ceremonial and the moral law. And you know what happened to 7th Adventists? They fought like cats and dogs to try to define which was the correct answer when they were both right. But what can sometimes happen when we get into debates on theology is we can take things to an extreme and make claims that are not actually true. And this is what happened. What happened was Smith and Butler and others said, if you say that the law is the Ten Commandments, you are setting people up to receive the Mark of the Beasts. Because if we say that the law is the Ten Commandments, then we are no longer under that law, and therefore the law will be done away with, and there's no point in being a Seventh-day Adventist faith anymore because we uplift the law of God. That was the argument that they made. But what they missed was this. The law is not done away with. It's just simply no longer the shadow that we are under. Because Christ is the embodiment of the law. When Jesus revealed himself on this earth, he was a personification of every commandment in the Ten Commandments. So that before he came, you have the Ten Commandments spelled out. You shall not do this, you shall not do that. Remember the Sabbath day. When Jesus comes, those things become obvious. When you spend time with Jesus, when you spend time in His Word, when you study His life in the Gospels, and when you see His teachings, and you get to know Jesus, you don't need the Ten Commandments to say, don't do that, because you know Him. And when you know Him, it's obvious that you don't go out and kill somebody. You don't go out and steal. You don't go out and commit adultery. Yes, you honor your parents, Yes, you remember the day that he has called us to remember. And so there was this big fight that was happening, and so Wagner was writing articles about the Law in Galatians and the Covenants, and then you had competing articles being written in the Review and Herald. So there was all this controversy and dissension leading up to the General Conference. And I'm not going to get into every last detail, but those were some of the things that were happening. Then, right before the general Conference session, there was a minister's meeting. And at the minister's meeting, they had some debates about some a variety of ideas, one of which was, what constitute the ten horns of Daniel Seven. Now, how many of you enjoy studying the ten horns of Daniel Seven? I, I do. I mean uh, I, but should we be fighting over the ten horns of Daniel Seven? Well, that's what happened. There was a fight over who the 10th horn was. They agreed on the first nine, but A.T. Jones said, hey, I've studied this further. The 10th one is the Alemanni, That's the German people. Uriah Smith, who had already published that the 10th horn was the Huns, wasn't going to go down without a fight. And they sparred with each other, and Jones was saying some harsh things about Smith, and Ellen White had to rebuke him. And then somebody asked Ellen White, what do you think of the 10 horns and what they're saying? And her response was, I think there's too many horns. And so this was the attitude leading up to the general conference session. Now, it's very interesting. This session happened October 17 to November 8 of 1888. You know how many delegates were at that session? Ninety-one. You know, Natasha and I have been delegates at the GC session. Maybe some of you have, too. There's over 2,000 now uh, at a GC session. It's very interesting to me how small a number of people can thwart the purposes of God for this world. Ninety-one delegates. You know, James White had died seven years earlier. And I have to think, and other historians have felt this too, what a different session it might have been if James White had still been alive. The influence that he had, of course, we don't know for sure what would have happened. But what a different session it might have been. Now, I want to read to you, because this is a testimony that I'm going to read from Dr. E.J. Wagner. Dr. E.J. Wagner was selected to give the morning devotionals at this general conference session. By the way, you know what time the morning devotionals were held at the GC session in 1888? 5.30 in the morning, and they all showed up. They were on time. A little bit of a different era than today. And Dr. Wagner gave a series of lectures on righteousness by faith. Now, mind you, there had been this dispute about the law in Galatians and the covenants and what righteousness by faith is. Notice this testimony that Dr. Wagner gives. He wrote this shortly before his death in 1916 about an event that happened in 1882. He says... Um, I began my real study of the Bible 34 years ago. At that time, Christ was set forth before my eyes, evidently crucified before me. Now, he's quoting, quoting Galatians 3, verse 1 there. He says, I was sitting a little apart from the body of the congregation in the large tent at camp meeting in Healdsburg one gloomy Sabbath afternoon. That's in Northern California. I have no idea what the subject of the discourse, not a word nor a text, have I ever known. you know who was speaking when this happened to him? Ellen White, all that has remained with me was what I saw. Suddenly, a light shone round me, and the tent was for me far more brilliantly lighted than if the noonday sun had been shining, and I saw Christ hanging on the cross, crucified for me. You know, I have to ask you, before I keep reading his testimony, have you ever had that moment with Jesus? Jesus? where you see Jesus as your personal Savior and you have that moment with him where you connect, you are my Savior? Or is it just a nice idea that you hear talked about? This was a personal experience and a revelation to him. He says, in that moment, I had my first positive knowledge, which came like an overwhelming flood, that God loved me and that Christ died for me. God and I were the only beings I was conscious of in the universe. I knew them by actual sight, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. And he goes on to say, I have always believed that every part of the Bible must set forth with more or less vividness, that glorious revelation of Christ crucified. You know, he had a personal experience. And from that personal experience, from that revelation of him saying Christ crucified for him, he set forth to share that message with those that he knew. And so the Lord or, brought, or came through with the promise that he gave to Ellen White after the death of James White, that he would raise up other messengers after the death of James White. And we see this with Dr. E.J. Wagner. We also see it with A.T. Jones. Dr. Wagner was trained as a physician, but he found that he studied, enjoyed studying theology and preaching better. A.T. Jones was a legal mind a historian, but also a very effective preacher. And the Lord used them to do a very great work. So at the 1888 General Conference session... E.J. Wagner preached powerful messages on righteousness by faith. Witnesses who were there say that Ellen White was sitting on the front row and would say over and over again, amen, amen, there is much light here. But, you know, the brethren didn't join her in saying amen. You know why? Because in their minds, if they said amen to what he was saying about righteousness by faith on what they could agree with, that would then empower him to come through with a punchline that they disagreed with about the law and Galatians or the covenants. And so they resisted the message that was given. Stories are also told that in the dormitories in the evening, rather than having seasons of prayer, the delegates made fun of Dr. Wagner, mocking him for his height. He was about 5'2 or 5'3. He might have been short in physical stature, but he was a mighty man of faith. And so, interestingly enough, 1888 is the last General Conference session that there were no notes or minutes taken of the sessions. After that session, they realized, you know, we we should probably write down what was said so that we can go back and look at it. So we have word-by-word accounts of all of the messages and meetings that have ever happened at a GC session since that time. Some have tried to claim, well, we don't really know what was said because we weren't there and there's no record of it. But we have a pretty good idea of what the message of righteousness by faith is that was preached at that session and that Ellen White endorsed. You know, just a few years after 1888, Ellen White wrote the book Steps to Christ. It's her exposition on righteousness by faith. If you have any doubt as to what righteousness by faith is that was presented in 1880. read that book. And by the way, I might add, that's a book that you should go back and read every two or three years at least. If you haven't read that book in a while, go back and read the book, Steps to Christ. There's always something in there that the Lord will speak to you about. And no matter how many times you've read the book, there's always a blessing in that with respect to righteousness by faith. We also have an account. There was a camp meeting that happened in Kansas not long after 1888 where Jones Wagner and Ellen White went together on the camp meeting circuit. If the brethren weren't going to promote this message, Ellen White would support it in in person with her presence. And one of the things that the, the camp meeting attendees said about how the Spirit reached them was this overwhelming sense Of peace that came when they realized that they really could receive forgiveness for sin. It's called justification by faith. And Adventists were preaching the law, the law, the law, but what we also needed was to know that we can be forgiven and that we can be justified and empowered and that Christ truly does accept us. And so it's very interesting what's happening. You have, by 1888, the Battle Creek Sanitarium has been going for 22 years. Luminaries from around the world were coming to the sanitarium. Retired United States presidents would come there. Other famous world leaders would come there. Because at the Battle Creek Sanitarium, the Lord's Physician was offering treatments that were actually helping people to improve their health. So the medical missionary work is the right arm of the gospel. So you had the right arm of the gospel firing on all four cylinders at this time. And the Sunday law was being debated in the United States Senate. All the pieces were in place for Jesus to come again. All he needed was for a people to be following him. And to have the message that would be taken to the world to prepare a people for the coming of Jesus. And at the 1888 General Conference session, the Lord sent a message designed to prepare His people to receive the latter rain in order to give the loud cry and to be prepared for translation. Let me read to you a few statements. This is Testimonies to Ministers, page 91. The Lord in His great mercy sent a most precious message to His people through Elders Wagner and Jones. This message was to bring more prominently before the world the uplifted Savior, The sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. It presented justification through faith and the surety. It invited the people to receive the righteousness of Christ, which is made manifest in obedience to all the commandments of God. And right there sums it all up. It presented Jesus, the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. It presented justification by faith, the righteousness of Christ, which is made manifest in obedience. And this is where Adventists will often fall into two ditches. You will either find some Adventists who are trying to obey without... The power of God, and in a very legalistic way, as they were in the 1880s, preaching the law, the law, the law, but the power of Christ and the peace of God is missing from the life. And yet, on the other hand, you have others who say, We're just going to preach Jesus, but they deny obedience. But it's a complete package, which we see in this message that the Lord sent. The quote goes on to say, Many had lost sight of Jesus. They needed to have their eyes directed to his divine person, his merits, and his changeless love for the human family. See, what Adonis were doing back then, and it's a temptation to do today, is to look at our merits and what we're doing rather than his merits and his changeless love goes on to say all power is given into his hands that he may dispense rich gifts unto men imparting the priceless gift of his own righteousness to the helpless human agent. And then this paragraph closes by saying this is the message that God commanded to be given to the world. It is the third angel's message which is to be proclaimed with a loud voice and attended with the outpouring of his spirit in a large measure. And then in the next paragraph very powerful statement. She says, centuries, ages, can never diminish the efficacy of this atoning sacrifice. The message of the gospel of his grace was to be given to the church in clear and distinct lines that the world should no longer say that Seventh-day Adventists talk the law of the law, but do not teach or believe Christ. That's what happened in 1888. And yet the brethren were saying, these guys are doing away with the law of God. They're going to get people to receive the mark of the beast. When what they were doing was giving the message from the Lord that was lifting Christ up. And the accusation was, oh, no, this is a, an antinomian message that's going to cause people to receive the mark of the beast. do away with these guys and, oh, Ellen White's supporting these brethren. She's under the influence. Don't believe her anymore. A very fascinating era in the history of Adventism. This is from Manuscript 5, 1889. Ellen White says, I have had the question asked, what do you think of this light that these men are presenting? Jensen Wagner. And she says, why? I have been presenting it to you for the last 45 years. The matchless charms of Christ this is what i've been trying to present before your minds when brother when brother wagner brought out these ideas in minneapolis it was the first clear teaching on this subject from any human lips i had heard excepting the conversations between myself and my husband you know it's amazing what the testimony of this message is. Here's another testimony, Manuscript fifteen, eighteen, eighty-eight. Said my guide, there is much light yet to shine forth from the law of God and the gospel of righteousness. This message, speaking of what was given in 1888, this message understood in its true character and proclaimed in the spirit will grow to large importance such as you scarcely can dream of and will lighten the earth with its glory. That's the loud cry. Now, you would think that Seventh-Adamnus, who understand the law, which is supposed to be a transcript of God's character, it is, but so we're going to preach the law, the law, the law, which is a transcript of Christ's character. If Christ and his matchless charms were preached in a way that the earth would be lightened with its glory, you would think that Seventh-Adamnus would rise up and testify with thankfulness and praise. This is the message, but that's not what happened. The message was not received. Selected Messages, Volume 1, 234, 235 says, By exciting that opposition, Satan succeeded in shutting away from our people in a great measure the special power of the Holy Spirit that God longed to impart to them. The light that is to lighten the whole earth with its glory was resisted, and by the action of our brethren has been in a great degree kept away from the world. And then another statement, letter 51, 1895, God has given Brother Jones and Brother Wagner a message for the people. When you reject the message borne by these men, you reject Christ, the giver of the message. Now, what happened in the years after 1888? The brethren came up with a plan. And it was fairly effective. You know, They saw that Jones, White, and Wagner were a triumvirate, and they said, we need to split this team up, or they're going to keep working together. So you know what they did? They sent Ellen White to Australia, E.J. Wagner to England, and Jones was left to fight the battles by himself in Battle Creek, which is not exactly a great idea, because Jones was the most hot-headed of the three of them. And as Ellen White said, if these brethren should fall away, it would not do away with the truths that they were preaching while they gave those messages. And we understand the history. You you look at what happened. Wagner goes off to England. Jones is in Battle Creek. They become frustrated for a variety of reasons. And then eventually Wagner comes back, and Jones, Wagner, and Dr. Kellogg form a team. And it was not a good team. Kellogg became very frustrated with Seventh-day Adventist ministers, and I'm not trying to step on any toes here, but Kellogg was well ahead of the ministers when it came to health reform. He was preaching a vegetarian diet. And you would have non adventists who would come to the sanitarium and he would show them the value of the vegetarian diet and of how it would improve your life. And these non adventists who came to his sanitarium would say, thank you so much, Dr. Kellogg. This is just what I needed to to improve my health and their health would get better. And then the 7th Adventist ministers would come to town and they'd come to the cafeteria in the sanitarium and they'd be like, where's the beef? And he's like, why am I working with these guys who don't even follow the light that God's given to us. And so he became disillusioned, and he opened himself up to the mind of Satan. And that's just a reminder to us that just because there are people in the church who aren't following the light that God has given us, that's not an excuse for us to then fall away. Because Dr. Kellogg fell away, and he wrote a book on, um, it's called The Living Temple, And it was a book that promoted pantheism, the teaching that God is in everything, God is in the trees, God is in the grass, all of that, and it went beyond what scripture teaches, and Jones and Wagner supported him. And without getting into all the detail, Jones became very embittered, Wagner came under a very weird influence of not only accepting pantheism, he came under this idea that, oh, you can meet your soulmate that you'll have in heaven on this earth, and if that's not your spouse, you can just go be with them instead of the spouse you have. I mean, it, it, weird, crazy stuff that happened to these guys who were preaching the message that God had sent to them, which reminds me, you know why God picked Jensen Wagner to give that message? It's not because they were such righteous men of faith, even though they were living the time. It's because they were very weak, sinful human beings that needed that message as much as anybody. So, what was the essence of this message that God sent through Jensen and Wagner? I've read some statements, but you know, it can be summed up in one Bible verse. Colossians 127, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. We're told In letter 24, 1892, the message given us by A.T. Jones and E.J. Wagner is the message of God to the Laodicean church. You know, in the Laodicean message, Christ stands at the door knocking saying, let me come in. Because as Adventists, we can look to 1888 and we can look to ourselves today and say, you know, we're the people of the book. We're the people who defend the truth. We are the people who have the light for the end of the world. And we are going to stand for what is true. And sometimes we forget that we better have let Jesus Jesus come in because if we haven't we'll be like the brethren in 1888 who Christ will come knocking on the door saying I'd like to come in and dwell within you and we could be like them and say you know what we're going to continue to preach the law the law the law and we're going to defend the covenants and Galatians and all of this and we're going to stand by the old landmarks and Christ will have come by and we will have missed him. Jesus stands at the door of our hearts saying, let me come in. Will we let him come in? Now, in the remaining time that I have, I'm just going to share with you a couple of statements of what this message was, just to give you a snapshot idea of what Jones and Wagner actually said. This is from General Conference Bulletin 1891, pages 156-159. In all our Christian experience, we have left little loopholes along here and there for sin. We have never dared to come to that place where we would believe that the Christian life should be a sinless life. We have not dared to believe it or preach it, but in that case, we cannot preach the law of God fully. Why not? Because we do not understand the power of justification by faith. Now, here's something very fascinating. Dr. Wagner says, if you don't believe that we can live a sinless life through the power of God, you don't understand justification by faith. And how often do you hear that preached in the Adventist church today? Yeah, I don't, I don't hear it very often, I'll be honest with you. Here's another statement. This is Jones in 1893. Christ is to be in us just as God was in him, and his character is to be in us just as God was in him. It is the cooperation of the divine and the human, the mystery of God in you and me. That is the third angel's message. Here's another one from Jones, eighteen ninety five. In Jesus Christ, as He was in sinful flesh, God has demonstrated before the universe that He can so take possession of sinful flesh as to manifest His own presence, His power, and His glory instead of sin manifesting itself. Then God will so take us and so use us that our sinful selves shall not appear to influence or affect anybody, but God will manifest His righteous self, His glory before men in all, in spite of all of ourselves and our sinfulness. And that is the mystery of God. Christ Christ in you, the hope of glory, God manifest in sinful flesh. And then finally, another one from Jones, from the consecrated way to Christian perfection. Perfection, perfection of character is the Christian goal. Perfection attained in human flesh in this world. Christ attained it in human flesh in this world, and thus made and consecrated a way by which in him every believer can attain it. You know, God is looking for a people who will accept the understanding that Christ, the hope of glory, can be formed within. It connects to Galatians 2.20, which says, I am crucified with Christ. When we are crucified with Christ, it's now no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which we live in the flesh is the life of Christ. This will then lead to the experience of Revelation 18.1, where the earth is lightened with the glory of God's character because Christ has been formed within. Christ in you, the hope of glory, the fruit of the Spirit. But you know, when I look at the world today, and even at the Seventh-day Adventist Church, I would have to say, and I don't think you could disagree with me, we live in a very divided world, and even in a divided global church, I mean, there's two versions at least of the right way to go in America. There's probably many more versions throughout the world. And there's, you know, in some respects, you could say there's two versions of our church under one administrative structure. You know, a few weeks ago, I spent 90 minutes of my afternoon watching a film, What is a Woman? I mean,. We've gotten to such a place in society that we can't even define what truth is anymore. I mean, I talked about this in a comment in Sabbath School this morning, but I'll elaborate on it here. You know, it's gotten so bad that there are some people in this world that, if I were to tell them that I have uh, that I identify as a five foot two Asian female, they would say, "Congratulations on reaching your understanding of your truth." I'd say, well, my, you know, my tape measure might say that I'm 5'11, but my truth says I'm 5'2. I mean, are we really going to be that ridiculous? I can say that's my truth, but you know what? It's not the truth. The truth will always be the truth, whether you like it or not. And Jesus is the truth. And I'm telling you, friends, at this time in Earth's history, the last thing we as Seventh-day Adventists need to be doing is aligning ourselves with the philosophies of the world that deny what truth really is. We should be able to stand on the firm platform of truth. Because, listen, you think that you're going to be like, well, you know, without getting into a lot of detail, I mean, I see some of my friends in the church say, and I might be speaking to the choir here but some people say oh well you know the left they're not going to cause the sunday law so i'm just going to align myself with them even though what they're saying is kind of ridiculous at least they're not going to be the people who push the sunday law but i mean i, I i'm not trying to be mean but you really think that you're going to stand for the truth of the sabbath when you can't even stand for the truth of what life is and what gender is i mean if you're if you're if you're backing away from truth, now you're not going to stand for truth at the end. And so, yeah, I get it, The the religious right's going to push for the Sunday law, so let's not line up with them either. But don't Fool yourself into thinking that by aligning yourself with one political party that denies truth, that you'll somehow be found on the Lord's side when standing for truth really matters. We should stand for truth at all times, realizing that either realizing that either party is going to go away from real truth. You know, these divisions that happened in 1888 continue to happen today and the question can be asked how long O Lord till you come you know I guess I've lived long enough to say I don't need to live another 20 years to see what life is really like on this earth to be convinced that it's pretty bad down here now look I'm thankful for all the blessings God gives me I've been blessed in so many different ways But at the same time, I'm tired of this world of pain. I'm tired of the sin and suffering. How many more news items are you going to need to to get? Like, oh, we have our sister in the church. He's been diagnosed with cancer. Our brother in the church, he has cancer. We need to be praying for him. Oh, pray for this family. They're going through a tough split. I mean, do you need 25 more instances of those to say, you know what? I guess really this earth isn't that good. I mean, how much more do we need to see to be convinced that this world is an evil place and that Jesus would love to get us off of this planet? And he tried in 1888 to send a message that would get us off this planet. You know, I believe that Jesus could be coming very soon. I look at the world around, and this place is falling apart. I mean, it's horrible. But, you know, I have to remind myself that Seventh-day Adventists in 1888 thought that Jesus was coming soon, too. What happened? Now, I want to hasten to add, for those who might listen to this later or even here today, I'm not necessarily advocating for everything that is said about what happened in 1888 by certain groups that come along and try to articulate things in certain ways. All I'm saying is if you want to understand what happened, go back and read what Jones and Wagner said, read what Ellen White said, and just come to a clear understanding of Christ and him crucified being lifted up and Christ being formed within the hope of glory and of having an attitude and a spirit of reconciliation and not of superiority because the reality is, is that the coming of Jesus was thwarted by power seeking, selfish, Seventh-day Adventist men and women who were more concerned about holding on to the levers of power in Battle Creek than they were in cooperating with Christ to bring this world of sin and suffering to an end. Now, I want to read to you, this is the last thing I'm going to read. This is from Testimonies, Volume 8, pages 104 to 106. This was a dream that Ellen White had on January 5, 1903, from her home at Elmshaven in St. Helena, California. Many of you have probably been there. This is a testimony that she sent to the Battle Creek Church two years after the 1901 General Conference session, which historians agree was the last moment of opportunity for the 1888 message to have taken effect on the church before a lot of different fragmentations took place. This is what she says. One day at noon I was writing of the work that might have been done at the last general conference if the men in positions of trust had followed the will and way of God. Those who have had great light have not walked in the light. The meeting was closed and the break was not made. Men did not humble themselves before the Lord as they should have done, and the Holy Spirit was not imparted. I had written thus far when I lost consciousness and I seemed to be witnessing a scene in Battle Creek. We were assembled in the auditorium of the tabernacle. Prayer was offered, a hymn was sung, and prayer was again offered. Most earnest supplication was made to God. The meeting was marked by the presence of the Holy Spirit. The work went deep, and some present were weeping aloud. Now, have you ever been at a meeting where people start to confess to each other, and you start crying because you realize that we're all sinful humans and that we've wronged each other in various ways? This is what should have happened then, and it should happen now. One arose from his bowed position and said in the past he had not been in union with certain ones and had felt no love for them, but that now he saw himself as he was. With great solemnity, he repeated the message to the Laodicean church. Because you say I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. In my self-sufficiency, this is just the way I felt, he said. And he goes on to quote the rest or much of the rest of the passage. Going on, she says, the speaker turned to those who had been praying and said, we have something to do. We must confess our sins and humble our hearts before God. He made heartbroken confessions and then stepped up to several of the brethren, one after another, and extended his hand, asking forgiveness. Those to whom he spoke sprang to their feet, making confession and asking forgiveness, and they fell upon one another's necks, weeping. The spirit of confession spread through the entire congregation. It was a Pentecostal season." God's praises were sung, and far into the night, until nearly morning, the work was carried on. You know, this is almost a description of what you read in the book of Acts, where they were in one accord in one place, and then the Holy Spirit descended upon them. What they had been doing for ten days was confessing their wrongs to each other. The disciples had been doing that. And this is what Ellen White is seeing here. Going on, the following words were often repeated with clear distinctness: As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, be zealous therefore and repent, behold, I stand at the door and knock, if any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. No one seemed to be too proud to make heartfelt compression, and those who led in this work were the ones who had influence, but had not before had courage to confess their sins. There was rejoicing such as never before had been heard in the tabernacle. You know, I wish that this testimony ended right here, but it doesn't. Here's the next paragraph, the last paragraph. Then I aroused from my unconsciousness and for a while could not think where I was. My pen was still in my hand. The words were spoken to me. This might have been. All this the Lord was waiting to do for his people. All heaven was waiting to be gracious. I thought of where we might have been had thorough work been done at the last general conference. An agony of disappointment came over me as I realized that what I had witnessed was not a reality. So I have to ask myself the question, and I ask you the question today. You know, we can look back and criticize the brethren for how they resisted the moving of the Holy Spirit. But what about me? What about you? You know, it's really easy to be part of a church, to even be part of a church family, and to have a feeling that I'm thankful that I'm the reasonable person that's here. And as long as I'm here... I'm going to stand for the old landmarks. And I'm going to be the faithful arbiter of truth. And all of that's important. But then, when somebody goes a little bit differently than we would want, we develop a spirit of different types of attitudes where we think we're better than them. We've got to watch out for them. And if our true hearts could be revealed, there are many of us who would be quite astonished at the attitudes of pride, superiority, and selfishness and sinfulness that the Lord needs to deal with in our hearts that we have towards fellow church members. And yet we think that if the Holy Spirit were to be poured out in the latter rain, that we would just be ready to receive it. But we haven't made things right with people from things that have happened years ago. And so that spirit that happened in 1888 continues today. The spirit of those who feel like, well, I'll choose and select which parts of inspiration I'll accept. As long as it fits with my opinion, then that's fine. That attitude happened in 1888, and it happens in the church today. There's a lot of different things that are happening, but God is looking for a people who will accept Christ and Him crucified who will accept the matchless charms of Jesus and who will see in Christ and him crucified a redeeming Savior who offers justification by faith, which we are told is the laying of the glory of man in the dust. And as we see Christ humble himself, we will realize that that's what we need today as well. And so I want to challenge you. Maybe there's someone here today. Maybe they're not at church today. Maybe there's someone that goes to a church out in California or out in Washington State or out in Maine or North Carolina, somebody that you have something against. And until you make that right, you're not going to be receiving the latter rain any more than the brethren in 1888. I just want to challenge you. Make that right before this time on earth passes us by. I believe that Jesus could be coming very soon and I believe that if we take this message to heart, the Lord can pour out his spirit upon us so that we can be ready for him to come, amen? So that's my challenge to you today. Spend some time with Jesus and let him speak to you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio